0: Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What?, comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. In this second installment of uh, my long-delayed conversation with Graham McMillan, we continue to talk about Brian Bendis, I offer a new metaphor for the state of the comics industry's largest companies, neither Graham nor I can think of the word defibrillator, and we talk a lot about a handful of movies, including Bubble and Education and District 9. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy
1: it was honestly like, it was a definer. My idea of where to start the story is... Dun, dun, dun!
0: <laughs> See, that's the great part, is I'm actually self-conscious enough that I think that it, that it is somebody being, you know, some benevolent force being like, Jeff, don't be an asshole. Just, here, we're going to cut you off, and we're going to come some back Skype, later. Some
1: Skype god is like, that's a terrible idea, Jeff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's not even like it's a... it's. Whether it could be the most awesome idea in the universe, but I think that it's really kind of much the Skype God saying, like, let's try and keep your armchair quarterbacking to something reasonable and not totally it's, it's asshole-ish, you
1: know? podcast. That's all we do is armchair quarterback.
0: Well, yeah, that's true. But I think I'm doing, like, I've moved from, like, armchair quarterbacking to sort of armchair, like, I don't know you know, body blocking or whatever the actual penalty type thing would I be in like,
1: Well done, you can tell that both of us are really into sports.
0: Exactly. <laughs> like, damn it, I was not able to shoot a basket from the 15-yard <laughs> line. Uh, yeah, no, we're not. Um,
1: uh, okay, but no, I, I think your point ultimately is is correct. I think that Bendis has... But this gets back to the whole lack of self-awareness Yes, thing. well, I, I,
0: that I, he does I, have. I think
1: he just... Bless him, I think, he, I think he means well, but I think what he writes and what he thinks he writes are in completely separate universes.
0: I totally, 1,000% agree with you. I just want to sort of make sure that to the extent that we're being, uh, that's that's almost like the opposite of what a hack does, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think one of the things... You, you think, you think
1: a hack, you're saying a hack is completely where they're writing shit, but oh. they're perfectly okay with writing shit
0: yeah exactly i mean they may say that it's not shit but but the idea is that the reason why uh you know a, a ha- like a hack knows every shortcut in the book and they use them you know and they they kind of have to for what whatever reason you know one reason or the other but yeah when you're hacking it out for the check um you know you want to make sure that you do a professional job but you're always aware of what you're doing kind of by nature and in fact the better hacks come up with the better ways to disguise it like this is going to sound incredibly crass but i think that jeff Loeb is a hack in a way that bendis is not on the other hand i think that both of them have unbelievably like really bad ticks that that end to some exceptionally sloppy um bad writing you know what i mean
1: I I I can see what you're saying about the latter part, and I think you're right. I think the lobe is more of a hack. But at the same time, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a hack. Um I grew up reading two thousand AD and to my mind almost everything in two thousand AD is hack work, <laughs> But it's really good.
0: Well yeah. But at the exactly. same time,
1: every there's there's a certain level of um knowing shittiness. Mm-hmm. To at least the early 2000 AD work, uh, stuff by Pat Mills or John Wagner or Alan Grant, mm-hmm. that they're completely aware of how, like, they're very cynically writing what they think the audience wants. Right. Um, and they're writing beneath themselves in a way. Mm-hmm. But it's still incredibly good, incredibly solid work.
0: Yeah, agreed. I mean, in, in, a,
1: in a way that it's something like Siege isn't.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean I think the difference between Pat Mills and, and Mark Miller is the level of craft that you can bring to your hackiness, you know? I think Yes. So. I,
1: I I almost said talent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well no, that and that that is something to I think that is, yes, the word that you would want to want probably want to use. Um but uh, but yeah, so I, I just think that it's worth pointing out that, that despite damning Bendis for a ton of mistakes and what he really needs, like you said, there that disconnect between what he says he's doing and what he's actually doing. I mean, again, his whole, like, uh, that's what I felt. Like, I feel it in, like, reading these articles where he's talking about the siege event. It's like, he says it, and then you look at what's coming out. And it's like, this is this is diametrically opposed. Like you're saying that this is the most amazing stuff. That's really going to make you think about like, Ooh, what's going to happen? Who's at risk now? And I'm like, there's no sense of risk. What's going to happen is precisely what you, what the writer decides is going to happen when they decide it has to happen. That's kind of the opposite of risk. You know?
1: But does that not get back to the idea that he needs a better editor? I mean, surely, ultimately, that is not his fault, but it's the editor's fault for not calling him on it. Because presumably at some point, Bendis tells the editor, I am going to do this with the story. Mm -hmm. And then when he doesn't deliver, is it not the editor's job to say, okay, this is great, but it's not what you said you're going to do? I mean, even if it's, this is going to sell better than what you said you're going to do, does he not have some responsibility to say, this isn't what you thought you were writing.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I do kind of feel that way. I don't think that that role of an editor as an editor, I don't know to what extent that really exists in a chunk of the comic industry, you know, because it whether it can or can't, because so much of this stuff is on a tight... I mean, what are they going to do? Turn around and, and say, like... Brian, we're not really happy with the way this Siege issue one came out. We're going to push the whole thing back for three months. I mean, you know. No, but at the
1: same time, they could say, Brian, we're not really... Well, not, not even that we're not... We're very happy with the way the Siege one came out. But this isn't what we discussed. Right. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, I feel, there, I feel that if there's no addressing the fact that he thinks he's writing book A and really he's writing book B, mm-hmm. that... It's just, it's not only bad editing, but it's going to really come back and bite them in the ass at some point.
0: Well, and I would say that point is Siege. You know what I mean? Like, I think what what has bitten them in the ass is that House of M was, I thought, pretty crappy, but a bunch of people were on it. But I, I honestly believe that, you know, people were so stoked. Civil War and World War Hulk did an amazing job of giving... A lot of people what they wanted and I don't think that Secret Invasion did for the most part and I think for the most part people are like I'm not going to follow you down this path anymore And and that's why I think that Siege is kind of that thing of like you know the readers have learned what to expect from this type of event I think when Bendis is handling it and it's kind of like yeah I mean I might pick it up and flip through it but you know let me get back to you in the last two issues when the body count starts piling up, and I'll let you know what I think. You
1: know. So, following on from that, do you think that Marvel has made a mistake letting Bendis have two Avengers books again, and for that matter, be in charge of the Avengers franchise again?
0: Well, that that's a really great question because before before Bendis, there wasn't an Avengers franchise you know so i mean what really can you do you kind of get into this weird situation of the when you have your star quarterback and he's taking you to the super bowl like three times in a row and his arm's starting to go go and you're not really seeing the results that you want how long do you keep him around before you decide that you can't you'd rather jump somewhere else or go somewhere else you know i i i personally think That Bendis's sales for Avengers, such as they are, were good enough. That if he wants to do two books... I mean, it's kind of like Claremont with the X-Men. For such a long time, there was a point where Claremont was clearly past his prime, but you could count on there being a certain number of results, and he had taken the franchise so far to such a certain point that it was kind of like, yeah, what are we going to do? Myself, I mean, if I had been like a Marvel editor... I think that it, I would have, I'd like to think that in my sort of brave, super heroic version of myself, I would have said after um, House of M, like, you have some real problems structuring these events. Let's work with you on this so that we can make sure that these events have the feeling that you really want to convey. You know, because I do think, I don't think that Bendis wants to write a boring comic. I think he thinks that he's writing awesome comics. Um, and that's, you know, that's a real uh, tendency for a creator to believe when they're writing something, particularly when they're writing something in the heat of the first draft. You know, that's why critical feedback is a good thing. And hopefully people have someone trusted that they listen to. And and so to bring it back, yeah, I do feel that the Marvel editors were making a huge mistake not trying to course-correct him through these events. And A, now it's going to come back to bite them. B, we'll... You know, if the if relaunching all these Avengers books ends up being a huge shedding point, and you see sales drop or not improve appreciably, um, I think that uh, I, I think that they've got you know they'll have no one to blame but themselves. But if I can turn this around for a minute, one thing that I do want to say that I think is fascinating is you mentioned Tom Brevoort's various you know, Twitter's and his blog posts. One thing that I've noticed in his blog posts that I find very uh, sort of depressing, but of what an editor does, is an editor figures out ways to reset the bar for the comic books that they're working on as far as sales go, you know what I mean? Like, looking at Tom Brevoort's stuff, it always seems like he's like, like when he was doing that amazing, like, you know, you be the editor game, you know, what Uh was was that? How old is that? Was that like
1: that? That was like two years.
0: It was like two years ago. He very much kind of like, I thought really did a great job of drawing behind the curtain of like, okay, you've got this book. It's going to shed a certain number of readers every month. How can you gain more readers without alienating new readers? You know, and so, when Marvel reboots these books again and again and again, I always feel like they're kind of, um, it's like looking at a fat man wearing pants without a belt, you know? The the pants are slowly always dropping, and there's always, like, some new way to kind of cinch your pants back up, and hopefully they're higher up than when you started, you know what I mean? Like, okay. That's... That is
1: that is the greatest analogy <laughs> for the comic industry ever. <laughs> I I'm kind of stunned by by the fact that you've just compared that just compared the entire comic industry to a fat man with no bells.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and yet apt. I'm going to it's stick by so, this so, metaphor.
1: Worryingly, I can see your point. That's that's the worst part. It's like really and yet wow.
0: It almost kind of works. Yeah, yes. no, know. It's true. So I I think that in a way their whole idea is like, you know, They have to come up with a reason every three or four years to to figure out how to reset sales. And if that means an anniversary issue, if that means killing the character, if that means rebooting, it seems to me like they always have something up their sleeve. And, And for me, for the most part, I feel like I can always see that at Marvel, where at Marvel they're always thinking like, okay, this is an acceptable level of what's selling. This isn't what do we do when it gets to that point? Like, we'll spin it off. Like, suddenly there'll be two Hulk titles. You know, it's like, oh, well, those Hulk titles aren't selling. It's, I mean, God bless. I really am, I I would love to actually see a series of memos just about Agents of Atlas, because that book, like, I do not think at the end of the day, if it does not manage to make its mark in the marketplace, it will not, because be because of a lack of trying on Marvel's
1: part. Agents oh, uh, of Atlas is kind of amazing in that it's one of the few books that gets cancelled and then the characters are in more series afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It got cancelled and then they had their own miniseries, a spin-off miniseries, and <laughs> a backup in Hulk. Oh no, Hercules. Right. Uh, that That was amazing. That was one of the times where you actually think, wow, Marvel really are trying their best to make this a success.
0: Yeah, I really feel that way. I mean,
1: it was it was really kind of stunning. Mhm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean and I, um and so for me it's like yeah, that is that's out there, that's definitely happening. They're certainly trying. Um but what I'm fascinated by is that idea of like, okay, well, you can slide it to a certain point, and then we're going to stop, reboot, and try a mini series. And then we'll give that a try. And if that works, we're going to stop. You know, the mini series will end. We'll launch them into something else. And then maybe we'll relaunch the book, you know, some other way. It seems very. I I, definitely get the idea that Marvel spends a lot of time looking at those sales numbers and spends a lot of time trying to figure out how to keep the juice flowing in those numbers. And I think ultimately that's kind of the idea of like, as long as those, those numbers are high, whatever Bendis is doing, I don't think that they're going to tell him yes or no. I think they're going to be like... You know, you go with it, we trust you, and I think they do trust him as long as those numbers come in. I do think that there's. they also show a lot of, again, with whether it's they have faith in Agents of Atlas or Jeff Parker or both, they've shown a real commitment to trying to um, make sure that that has a chance to stick in the marketplace, even though what bothers me is instead of doing it in a way that... Um, feels genuine, which is putting out an ongoing and giving promotion to that um, counting on the artificial bump of a new number one or super variant zombie covers or a crossover with whatever's hot or this hot event you know
1: um, Yeah, but at the same time, I don't think the idea of putting out an ongoing and promoting that ongoing is in any way something that Marvel would seriously consider anymore I, I think I think that idea would be laughed out of the uh business room where they're saying that you know no idea is too stupid. I, I I feel that that idea is too stupid for them. It's so alien.
0: Well, because it's not a creative idea, it's a marketing idea, you know. I mean the the creative ideas they'll totally go with, but the idea of yeah, an ongoing the whole,
1: but the whole idea of um this book isn't selling so less put it on hiatus, which is essentially what they did for Agents of because mm-hmm. quite clearly like, it came back within, what, six months? Mm-hmm. Quite clearly, they knew they were going to try and bring it back. Right. Um, so we put it away, we have an X-Men miniseries, we have an Avengers miniseries, we have a Marvel Boy miniseries for no immediately obvious reason apart from maybe like we, we wanted to lay claim to the Marvel Boy name again. Um, and then we bring it back out. It's not a creative... That's not a creative decision either. That's an entirely business decision. It's those stories you're telling; they're not selling well enough. These are the stories that will sell right instead. That I I wouldn't call that a creative decision at all. That that strikes me as an incredibly business decision.
0: Yes, I'm sorry. I guess when you said there's no the the ideas, I thought you meant I thought you were talking to them. Their reference to like story ideas or creative ideas, not. Not necessarily the marketing approach.
1: No, yes. no, the the very the very concept of promoting an ongoing title, mm-hmm. I think, is not something that they would consider, unless that ongoing title is like X Factor issue two hundred, right? You know, unless you you can have a you have a gimmick for the fact that it's an ongoing title.
0: Well, that's it. I mean, I think that's the. I think those are the areas where you know you do you yeah, kill the character you bring it back for the the big anniversary issue or before but you know then they're dark you know i mean there's a there's a variety of ways i i feel like again that it's very much a numbers game for them and they're doing what they can through the numbers but in this super kind of short term let's look at the next 3 months let's look at the next 6 months you know um, i'm i'm much more curious at seeing books that are around that hopefully get a chance to either sell a regular amount of issues or or kind of grow you know and i don't really think that i think that the all the all the growth at marvel feels like it's a very short term inorganic like you know like a uh, those unit um, uh, you know, Screw it. Like, I was going to say the cardiac respirators, where you just pump somebody in the chest and suddenly they like, <laughs> leap off the table.
1: Yeah, the, the, the What are they called? Exactly. I can't
0: believe that of can Remember what it's called? <laughs> Let's
1: move on so that everyone isn't laughing at this. Because right now, everyone who's listening to this is screaming.
0: Oh, they're yeah. Like, they're called the blah 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 Right. Because sadly, the median age and weight of of the comic book marketplace is such that everyone has used them oh, three or four really? times by now. Really? Is that
1: what you're going
0: to... <laughs> I, Well, no. I mean, I'm being sarcastic. Why would anyone know what those are called unless you've been had them used on you? You know what I mean? Or you they're, watch a lot of television? I
1: could say they're in every television show ever. Yeah, I know, but that's why. That is a syringe of adrenaline straight through the chest.
0: Yeah, or the Heimlich maneuver in the restaurants. Like, we know what the, I know what the Heimlich maneuver is because I, of its prevalence in TV. That, that
1: seems to be fading. I've not seen the Heimlich done in restaurants for a while. Oh, yeah. I, I was watching the, um, the beginning of the, let's be honest, absolutely atrociously shit um, Sunshine cleaning last night because it was a Netflix instance and I was very bored. Yeah. Um, and there's uh, one of the few interesting parts of that incredibly dull film um, was that amy adams character is for some reason obsessed with scenes the in, scenes in movies that she's watching set in diners that include pancakes <laughs> I, I i love that i like i genuinely love that not only because it's really weird and quirky and like there is the film which is like forced quirky yeah. um, but also, it's sort of acknowledging all the cliches that happen in these of films. I love the, the fact that there's a scene where she comes in and her sister's watching this movie in a diner. And it's just like, there's a diner scene, but there's no pancakes. And Amy Adams is like, ah, oh, fuck. Yes. But, you know, I, I love that. But that's completely... For, we're completely getting off the
0: subject again. Well, as long as we're getting off the subject, you, did you make it to the end of the film? They explain why they do that, and I thought it was very depressing.
1: Really? Yes. Oh, I and then, Dude, it,
0: it ties into their it's character's backstory.
1: Did it something to do with their mother?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: See, I, did you like it?
0: No, I thought it was... I,
1: I, thought, I thought it was really bad. I, I was one of the things where it's like, I like Amy Adams. Mm-hmm. You know? I, it's probably going to be quirky. I'll totally watch this film. I'm... <laughs> It was horrible. It was almost as bad as um, Big Fan, which I almost—I also watched on Netflix recently. The, um, oh, um Oswalt? Yeah, oh, really? Yeah, that, that was written by the guy who used to be the editor of um, The Onion.
0: Right, who also wrote The Wrestler, I think.
1: Yeah, which is another film where, so, or another thing I should say, where someone desperately needed an editor.
0: The, the I Wrestler mean, needed an editor?
1: No, 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 The Big Fan.
0: Oh, oh okay.
1: You get maybe, like, 45 minutes into Big Bang, you're like, oh, is the story finally starting? <laughs> I mean, really, it's, it's the slowest, most self-loathing thing I've ever seen. And I read comic books.
0: <laughs> you read Brian Bendis' event comic books. Exactly. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, it was, it was
0: really bad. <laughs> yeah,
1: I... And I really disappointed. It. it was of the things where I was like, hey, it's Robert Spiegel, hooray! It's Patton Oswalt to be funny, or... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm kind of bummed, because I saw the previews for that, so I knew that it would be not funny, Patton Oswalt, but I was still kind of like, oh, I might be into that as a character study, and in part because I thought the wrestler worked really well in lots of ways, so... Um, but Sunshine Cleaning Company was really disappointing. I was impressed at just how um how how by the numbers it was and how much it felt like unspontaneous and even particularly when it was trying to be spontaneous, and just very much not good. Very, very predictable and in all the wrong ways, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I was I was actually kinda of surprised at just how bad it felt. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I can imagine. And particularly, it's, isn't it amazing when you watch something and you're like, wow, this is really crap, and I basically watched it for free, and I still think it was crap?
1: Yes, exactly, yeah. Netflix is great for that. Netflix is great for being like, oh, I, I was quite interested in this film when it first came out, but not interested in enough paper. I know, I'll watch it for free. Oh, shit. I, it's, it's just full of, I can't even remember, It was. Oh, is it Bubble, the Steven Soderbergh film? the the one where he was like I'm going to make this in two days and yes and, and everything have you seen that I haven't oh life is too short <laughs> and I say that I someone who likes Soderbergh and likes you know things slightly off the beaten track but mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where you're like oh now I realise why using people who aren't actors is a bad idea
0: right right it almost always is a bad idea sometimes it's exceptionally
1: Sometimes if you great. find someone, yeah. Sometimes you find someone who can make it work. Yeah. You're like, this is amazing. Why can more people not do this? And then you see something like Bubble, and you're like, oh, right. that's that's why. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's it's again something that had so much potential and sounded so interesting ahead of time, and then when you see it, you're just like, oh, <laughs> oh, I, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: You know, at the opposite end of the spectrum, probably the exact opposite end in almost every way from Bubble, is uh, Edie and I saw An Education like a few nights back. Oh,
1: I really, I really want to see that.
0: I really would love you to see that t- so that I can know what you think. Because I was, um, I, you know, this is, for me, 2009 was really, at least the Oscar picks, were the year of the movies that I admired but didn't really love for the most yeah. part. And yeah. an education is really interesting to me because it's not a perfect movie, but it does... What I'm really impressed with is how it sort of has... it's a, To me, it's a Hollywood movie in the best sense, in that it manages to take a topic that really seems like it is going to be very, very creepy and uncomfortable and keeps sort of wrapping little delicious sugar around it so that you kind of keep (laughs) looking forward to it. Like you're at every point in that movie, I was sitting there going, wow, I cannot believe that a subject that really, to me, I find at heart kind of creepy and, and, um, distressing is, you know, such a confection filled romp, you know? So it, it's really i'm very I was very impressed with it. It really struck me like I said, as a Hollywood movie in the best sense of like here's what happens when you take craft and you take skill and you use it and you use it for evil, yeah, you use it for evil, absolute wrongness, but in the right way, you know what but, i mean I, i'm
1: actually I'm kind of fascinated with that sort of idea the the idea of um making something that you kind of know is wrong like morally wrong or, or socially wrong or, or something like that. But through art, making it seem at least understandable. Right. Um, I mean, I guess, the, I was going to the best example, but that's not really true. But like a, Lolita is a, a sort of famous exa- example of this. It's not that you're like, well, I suddenly agree that, you know, underage girls are hot. Right. But, but it, it makes it into something that's... Um, I don't know, easier to empathize with, or, or something that it it somehow de-demonizes it while still having a, a a viewpoint on it, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, very much so. I mean, Lolita is is a is kind of a perfect example of that. Um, an education's interesting because for me, and this is where unfortunately it'll get too weirdly meta, is or formalist is is You're like, it, it's
1: because I was a young English girl.
0: I was. And I was in that situation, Graham, and no 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 no.
1: It's no, nothing no. like that.
0: <laughs> well no, I mean the thing that I think is interesting is when you watch the movie, you really to me I had the feeling of like that really is not particularly related to reality as I know it. But it's 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 what Hollywood I think used to be able to do so well of like this has nothing to do with reality per se but it still manages to make you think about things and give you enough reality in in the confection that you really feel um, edified without kind of just being turned off you know what I mean like unfortunately yeah. this is this is my um, as I move into sort of my later bourgeois years, it's getting harder and harder for me to go to movies that are going to be kind of, um, uh, I don't know, just kind of like really, really down and depressing. And I hate to say it. Like part of me is like, I'm with my wife. I want a good time. I want to be able to laugh. I want to basically not have this feel like a chore. And, Um, you know, a little bit of chore is okay. And one of the things I like about an education, and the reason why I say that the the evil part, is not so much that it's, um, is I think in that an education manages to give you the real feelings of things and make you think about what really happened without really presenting what really happened. And for the most part, it does it so well that for me, I had this feeling of tremendous relief of like, oh, thank goodness, this is not kind of quote-unquote what really happened. I mean, maybe it was. It says that it was based on a memoir, and I haven't really poked into the stuff on the internet where they say that Hornby took a lot of liberties. It feels like a movie where somebody took a lot of liberties with a real story of like, well, okay, how do we convey how this character can be charming um, and also... Reinforce that what they're doing is wrong, but also reinforce why the girl is attracted to it, but without making it seem strident or didactic or even despairing, you know, I I thought I was really impressed at the way that an education is was able for me anyway, to take all these things that should not have been palatable and makes them palatable. By lots of ways that I think you would technically consider to be sort of cheating in a sort of, you know, Hollywood feel-goody kind of way, but that still manages to work, you know. The idea is that you're not wrapping your sugar coating around another sugar pill, that you actually have something that you want the audience not just to swallow, but to generally enjoy swallowing, and then they walk out of and go, wow, I really feel like I was like I have more understanding of what was happening than before I walked into the movie. You, you know but what I mean?
1: The, the way you're describing it, it sounds like I a, a, I don't say a classic movie, but I kind of mean that it's definitely an old-fashioned movie, a, a movie that creates an artifice for a greater truth.
0: Right. That is exactly it. Yeah, like you said, in that classic movie mode. And so I'd be curious to have you go see the movie and say, yes, Jeff, you're right, or...
1: Or come uh, back and be like, no, you're
0: entirely wrong! Exactly that would be, I would be thrilled either way because I'm hoping that you'll have the same reaction that I did. But yeah, a a perfect example of that is like the movie Casablanca, which is a great movie has almost no bearing in reality or history as it actually happened or existed, you know, but you can still end up. But I I think
1: like the emotional truth is there. I think you can get away with fudging um, facts even though it's obviously not factual. But um, you, can get, you can get away with uh, falsifying details if there's an emotional resonance there.
0: Right, exactly. I mean, that's the great one of the great mysteries and triumphs of Casablanca is the idea of here is something that has almost no bearing in reality as we understand it, and yet actually makes you, cues you into a lot of things that are very real you know, um, in, in a way that really works. It really earns the stuff that it does, even though, like you, like I said, it's, it's artificial. But yeah, so I'd be curious if that's what you think uh, of edu- an education or not, because what I found with, like, for example, the complete opposite end of the spectrum, District 9 has a lot of things to say about, you know, the human condition, and it's wrapped in uh, uh, tremendous amounts of artifice, but I found it kind of not entirely enjoyable, not particularly, I thought it was very clumsily crafted, um, and the parts that were kind of brilliant were mitigated by the parts that were exceptionally artless. It's
1: it's somewhat um, heretical to say, but District 9 reminded me of nothing as much as Cloverfield.
0: Oh, that's great. That's funny, because for me, it reminded me of nothing so much as Borat, you know what i mean
1: <laughs> actually i do yeah um, i I wouldn't have made that connection myself <laughs> <laughs> um district 9 is one of the things that has become, and maybe this is because of I and I am you know paying too much attention to this sort of thing um people are like, this is the future of filmmaking, and it's really not there's 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 um I feel it's the like future filmmaking is, as much as um like Lord of the Rings was, or, or Avatar was, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right. Um, I, I feel future filmmaking shouldn't be about the razzle dazzle, and, and I think that ultimately, District Nine is kind of a hollow film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think if you get beyond the style, there's there's some substance there, but it's like it's substance in the same way that and I know this is going to seem like a completely random disc, but I swear <laughs> there's a reason. Um, like, Channel Zero is, Brian Wood's Channel Zero.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, sure, like, both Disgrenders and kind of Channel Zero are stories about something, and about something real, and come from heartfelt places, but they feel like student works. They feel like the work of someone who hasn't really learned subtlety, and has confused subtlety with metaphor. Mm-hmm. Mm.
0: Interesting. Yeah, there I I think that that's a that's a really interesting comparison. Um it's hard for me because I kind of felt that part of what sort of bothered me about District 9 was that as it went on, it sort of it starts as one thing and then in order to be able to get th- make it more than a short movie and to get to the end of the movie, they end up sort of turning it into a formula I guess Um, and the one thing that always impressed me about Channel Zero uh, and unfortunately not in a good way was how it falls apart as like it doesn't to me it never seemed to work as a story it never really seemed to work for me as anything other than a series of artfully Graphic crafted design exactly oh god exactly that is that's precisely how, what it seemed like to me yeah the, the i
1: i remember seeing channel zero for the first time and i feel really nice it's like i now really like brandwood's work i think that local and i think the tmc and mm-hmm. northlanders to an extent although i'm not into the viking thing i uh, and demo i think are, are good and i enjoy them but i remember channel zero i was pretty much just like oh look he to art school and, and maybe this comes from the fact that I went to art school, and so I knew people who did that sort of thing all the time, that, you know, I'm trying to say something important about the state of the world, mm-hmm. and here I am with my full photocopy finish, and exactly. typography. And so I literally was just like, "Always oh, been to art school. That was my entire response to it. <laughs> um... Which is terrible. Like, I taught at an art school. I didn't just go. I taught at an art school. I was responsible for turning out people like that. But <laughs> it really was. It was, it, was um, it, it was really, like, it was that level of um, hyper sincerity mm-hmm. wrapped up in hyper awareness of the package. Right. Well, it, it was It, it and, and to an extent, it felt like that to me as well. Like, yeah, te- yeah, yeah. technically, I couldn't fault it but I also didn't really feel like there was a a genuine reason to tell the story.
0: Well, I mean, and, and maybe you'll back me up or not, but I generally feel that one of the potential problems with having someone who is turning out a work that is hyper sincere. uh, And what was the other term that you used to describe it? It was, Do you remember? It was like, you're like, oh, you know. Art student? (laughs) No, 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 no. I I it a hyper sincere and hyper
1: aware of the packaging.
0: There we go. Hyper sincere and hyper aware of the packaging to me is, unfortunately, frequently points to somebody who is um, trying to hyper avoid criticism. You know what I mean? Like it's really, really hard to criticize someone when they are, you know, both hyper aware of the packaging and hyper sincere because those are two two ways that you deflect criticism like it's a great way to craft a style that prevents you from being criticized rather than having something that you're trying to say sort of like it's almost like that's the real secret goal of the artist is to oh, avoid I'm,
1: being criticized. I'm not i mean i semi agree but i think it actually comes from more of a place of insecurity than anything else. I think the more aware people are of the packaging, the more aware they are of how the packaging is going to be read. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this very um, self-conscious uncertainty Mm -hmm. about almost about trying not to be misunderstood to the point where it just becomes, becomes so much about here is my intention, here is my intention, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that that I think that overpowers anything else. I think being so sincere and aware of the packaging can lead to a complete lack of subtlety, not, but not, like, I don't think it's a a direct, I don't think there's a thought line that connects them. I think it's almost an accidental thing because they become very aware of how everything can be misread. Or maybe I'm projecting. I don't
0: know. No, 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 no. I actually got kind of distracted because I I think that... (laughs) Because it it makes sense. It made me start thinking about um, both a Barton Fink and a serious man and the Coen brothers, actually. Because that's... um, I always felt that Barton Fink is, is a pretty good example of, you know, the artist that is not subtle because they're very... You know, passionate about what they're doing, and of course, underneath it is various levels of insecurity, and and kind of you know, to what extent the Cohen brothers are sympathetic to that character, or really just have a very strong desire to mock that character mercil- mercilessly. Oh, I think
1: I think there's both. I think the, the desire to mock comes from the recognition.
0: I hope so. I hope so. I think they do such a good job with their own level of formalistic precision that it can be very very hard to tell at least it can be very hard for me to tell but i would like to believe that that's the case let's put it that way
1: i i i really hope i really hope that's the case. <laughs> i like the going brothers I'd, I'd like to think that
0: yeah yeah okay you know what i have to pee we're just past the 30 <laughs> minute part wow um yeah, what's a what's a podcast without the the announcing of upcoming urine? So why don't uh, why don't we? Can I call you back in like two or three minutes? I actually can. I'll throw out some comic books and that I'm pretty sure names of which you've read and you okay. Can talk okay. About them. Let's
1: let's try and talk comics instead of movies, which is what we've been doing for the last half hour.
0: I've totally been enjoying it, but yes, I just kind of I figured it's out so a way. Like, that it's like a it's like a
1: word to balloon podcast. <laughs> and if, if you don't balloon, then that joke will be entirely lost on you. It might
0: be entirely lost on. You.
1: Word, okay, you've never listened to Wordplay. Wordplay is. Um, John Suntress does these essentially like hour long, if not longer, interviews with comic creators. And whenever he's talking to Benzis Fraction or Baker, it always turns into a movie conversation. Oh, yeah. I believe always. That. Always for a least like half an hour. I think that's totally
0: perfectly okay. Oh, it's
1: great! It's, yeah. it's, it's very enjoyable to listen to. It. It's just. That's what we just did. We just completely got. <laughs> Okay, go piss. We'll talk about it in five minutes. Okay, great. Bye. Bye.